Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is October the 2nd, 2020, and this is uh, episode 2744 of the Survival Podcast. And did you think I was going to let it go? Do you think? Did you think I was going to let another month passing by go without going TikTok? Because I'm not. Didn't do it yesterday, but I am going to do it today. Tick-tock, tick-tock. The clock ticks for us all. Are you making the most of your dash? Remember, every day you're either either moving a little bit more toward liberty, freedom, independence, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, or life's moving you backwards. I mean, life's not a sliding scale. It doesn't work that way. You can't just build up to a certain point and stop. You've got to be doing a little bit for yourself every day, or life moves you backwards. We just hit October. That's October, November, December. That's three months. We call that a quarter. Q4 of 2020 has begun. And I know many of you are thinking, good riddance. This this year's like a booger that you can't get rid of. I understand feeling that way. I get it. But don't think everything's going to magically get better on January 1. I do think 2021 in some ways will be a better year. Maybe in some ways a worse year. But the choice as to how you experience that year year is going to have a lot to do with how you design your own life from this moment forward. Tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. We're going to be talking about that with our quote of the day in just a minute. First up, let me tell you what we got on the docket today. Derek Monpietro will talk about dealing with weirdo transmission problems, i.e. gremlins in the tranny. Uh, Tim the Tool Man, some of y'all are going to make some nasty jokes about that one, don't. Tim the Tool Man Cook will talk about storing tool batteries in the long term. Doc Bones is going to tell you about a food burn parasite called Cyclosplora. You, you probably think, I don't care. You might when you find out what it does. Uh, Chef Keith Snow will give you the skinny on storing fats. Dr. Ken Berry will talk to you about timing supplements when doing intermittent fasting. And Patrick Rorman answering a question that I would have thought somebody would have asked a long time ago, and I feel kind of stupid that I didn't think about it and ask it myself. If you're going to do one of them knife kits Jack's talking about all the time, and you don't have a bunch of fancy-pansy tools, and you ain't never done one before, and you're trying to pick a knife kit for your first knife, maybe not which one, but what should you look for? What type of knife kit should you select, and what things should you do if you're building one for the very first time to have a good experience, especially if you're doing it with a kid. Sometimes kids lack this thing called patience. Sometimes adults do, too. And then finishing up for the council, the awesome Nicole Awesome Sauce is going to talk to you a little bit about getting started with SEO, that's search engine optimization for the uninitiated. And that's a really important thing if you're setting up a website uh, so that you can be found. And, and you're not going to become a, an SEO ninja overnight. It's it's a science. It really, It's an art and science blended together, really. Um, but, you know, basic SEO can make sure that you at least are easy to find for people who know what they're looking for, like trying to find you. Another thing it can do is really, really let you take niches that are highly valuable. If you want to know what I mean by that, go search for Fort Worth duck eggs on Google and you'll see what I mean. It wasn't hard. Anyway, with that, I will be doing an anchor segment today talking to you a little bit about ketogenic diets. Uh, there was a question that came up on the blog that I thought was really interesting, something, something we should talk about. 
Um, somebody said, is the real secret to keto eating only real food? Because during Ken Berry's interview last week, he said no plant fats, you know, except for maybe like olive oil. But, you know, all of the, 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 the vegetable fats that people live on in this country, like soy, bean, oil, which is just nasty, and canola oil and all that crap, none of that. Well, do you have to do that to be keto? No. And there is something called dirty keto, and as far as weight loss goes, at least, it, at least to a large degree, it does work. But overall health is much better done with clean keto. I want to talk to you a little bit about the difference between the two and where I see a place for dirty keto. Sometimes it's part of that methadone that gets the, the addict off the dope. And then we can transition over time to, to better and better keto. And I'm going to reference an article somebody sent me today. I ain't going to read it to you because if I read it, it's going to make my IQ go down. But I'm going to tell you something people say about keto all the time and why it's not true and why the approach that we're talking about here is incredibly, incredibly sustainable, meaning that you can keep doing it. I don't mean it environmentally. We can talk about that some other day. But it's sustainable in that it has never been the case that I've gone low-carb and been able to stay there until I did it ketogenically. That's what actually made it something that I could stay on for the rest of my life, and I don't feel like I'm missing out on jack-diddly crap. Before we do that, I'll start off with a quote of the day today. This is by Anne-Marie Willis. And uh, quote fancy where I found this, or brainy quote where I found this quote says she's an American. I found one Anne-Marie Willis that's a designer who's listed as a professor in Germany and also in Tasmania. Uh, so I don't know if that's the same person or not, but she's a designer, at least is listed. And I wanted something on design today to kind of to tie in with some, some of my thoughts uh, this week on design and creation. She said one time, we design our world while our world acts back on us and designs us. I think that's really true in the world of permaculture and lifestyle design as a whole. We do the very best we can to design the life that we want. Or in the words of uh, Sue LaPriest, to design the life we'd love to live. But in the end, just as no battle plan survives contact with the enemy, no lifestyle design plan survives the reality of life. And things happen, and things change, and things push back. That's why one of our permaculture principles is to observe and interact and accept feedback. Sometimes what we think is the right thing isn't really the right thing, and by observing and interacting, we can make changes to the design and be fluid as we go. There are so many examples of this in life, though, outside of permaculture, so many times that I've said, this is the way I'm going to do something, and I started working on it, and I put a design together, and I started going forward with it, and guess what? Nope. Nope. I've got to improvise, adapt, and overcome like they teach us in the military. What does that have to do with the world designing us? Every time we actually take that step, and we... Instead of just kind of going with the flow, we take control and we lay out a plan, a design for what we want to occur. And we engage with that plan. And the world does push back. Reality does push back. And we have to improvise and adapt and overcome. We are being designed as beings at the same time. We're becoming smarter. We're becoming faster. We're becoming better designers. The world is designing us into designers when we're active and we accept that feedback and we adapt and we overcome, and the next time we go into that space of design, we'll do a better job. But there'll still be pushback. There will still be 
things that we cannot foresee until we engage with them. Things will change. I've been such a fan of a plant called water lettuce, and this year it killed a bunch of my fish. It took all the nutrient out of the water. It started to fall apart. It got in the fish's gills, and I lost quite a few fish in one of my ponds and had some unhappy but living fish in some other ponds. I'll be talking more about that next week. But that was an example of something that I thought I had down. And it was something I so believed that I had down pat that when I started to notice that those fish were not behaving right, which is what I always say to do with fish systems, is watch. And when they're not eating or they're not eating as aggressively, and, and especially when you have two separate bodies of water that are the same temperature, same time of year, same fish, same diet, and one's behaving differently, something's wrong. Started changing the water in and out. Didn't matter. Fish still got sicker and sicker. Finally pulled the dead one out and saw all kinds of little things stuck in her gills and said, I wonder, and checked the roots on that water lettuce and it was falling off. That was a selection of a plant, but that was part of a design. It had been implemented as a way to breed fish because it's where goldfish deposit their eggs. It's been implemented into a way that I mulch my gardens and make compost. It's part of a design. But now I know something to look for, and it either has to change or it has to be used a little bit differently. And we have to observe it a little bit differently. We have to have a time that we pull it from the water a little bit earlier. We have to, make, But I know that now. I'm a better aquatic designer because the world acted back and designed me. But it only happens if we get up and we take the shot. It only happens if we engage. That's the only way we actually get to experience this is by being active in the first place. And remember what I've said about lifestyle design and designing your life. There are only two choices. Two. There's no third option here. You either design your life, or society and the systems design one for you. Because you will have one. And it will not be completely aimless and without design. Society and the systems have been set up so that anybody that just goes through blindly based on their ability, their age, their health, the place they live, the place they go to school, all of those demographic pieces, your life's laid out to where they can tell you, you know, basically how much... Right now, if somebody can look at you and say, this is how much money you will have or not have when you retire, this is the age you'll probably die at, and this is what you'll probably die of. So you can either design your life or live the one designed for you. It's your choice. We design our world while our world acts back on us and designs us, Anne-Marie Willis. With that, let's talk about something that has a hell of a lot of design that goes into it. Whoever designed the first one was a freaking genius. An automatic transmission. Derek Bonpietro talks about one with some weirdo problems, and I would say, yeah, gremlins. And I've experienced things like this with transmissions myself. Derek, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. Got a question from Aaron about a Ford F-150 automatic transmission. Let's dig in. My 1999 Ford F-150 has a transmission problem. When you put it in drive, it will not go forward on its own. If you give it a push, it does go forward. If you put it in reverse, it goes on its own without a push. Is there anything I can do other than taking it to a shop that will tell me I need a, re, uh, need a rebuild transmission? The oddball details. I had the engine rebuilt five or six years ago, and it runs fine with less than 50,000 miles on the rebuild. I live in Red Oak, Texas, just 20 minutes from Dallas. Total miles are 260,000, and this uh, 99 F-150 has a 4.6 liter V8. Well, 
Any problem with an automatic transmission tends to be a complex one, so let's unravel this and see what we can get out of it. This F-150 has a 4R70W. Uh, it's an electronic four-speed. Uh, goes back uh, many decades, but uh, eventually became electronically controlled and is now in a lot of those rear-wheel drive, four-wheel drive Ford platforms. Uh, so it's a very, very common transmission. It's pretty simple for an automatic. So not a lot of, as far as like troubleshooting goes now the transmission responds in reverse as normal but we're having a problem with moving forward in first gear and i'm assuming that we're in first gear d-range because first gear d-range and first gear when you pull the column all the way down to l or one whatever it says uh, are actually two different modes of operation so if you're having a problem in d-range always try to move the lever down to l to see if it responds differently and this can kind of be a telltale that maybe it's a one-way clutch problem, which is a little internal uh, clutch mechanism. So if it moves forward in, L, in the L position, but it doesn't move forward in D position, that, that's usually the telltale. And since I don't have that information, we'll, we'll go a little bit further. Since we have reverse gear, but we don't have first, we can assume that the transmission fluid quality and level and the oil pump are more than likely okay. And so kind of back up with an automatic transmission there's a pan that holds a couple quarts of oil and at the front of the transmission casing there is an oil pump so whenever the engine's turning it's spinning this oil pump in the transmission it's picking up fluid and it's creating what we call line pressure and line pressure is kind of the blood of the transmission there's a ton of tons of different valves that control line pressure and turn them into other little pressures that do other things within the transmission but everything comes off a of line pressure so without it you go nowhere. You put it in gear, you rev it up, does nothing. So if your transmission's completely dead in the water, we would want to look at the fluid, the pickup. There's like a little filter, a cotton filter on the bottom of the pickup. So fluid level, filter, oil pump, all of those things we'd be looking at if it did absolutely nothing. Since we have reverse gear, we'll move on past that point. Now Aaron says when you try to move forward, if you give it a push, it starts to go. And the other the other type of uh, symptom you'll have is that maybe if you rev it up a little bit, it tends to kind of like clunk into gear or move forward, but it's more of like a creep. It's not like a direct hit the throttle and the thing takes off on you. And that's really the connection uh, in the clutches and the brakes inside the transmission. So these clutches and brakes are either going to turn a piece of the gear set or hold a piece of the gear set. and the gear sets have small and big gears inside of the planetary, and by turning and holding certain ones, it'll give you all these different gear ratios. And so when a brake or a clutch slips and fails to turn the part of the gear or hold the part of the gear, that's when you get that really weird symptom of it kind of like creeping along, and you don't feel like there's a direct connection. It's kind of like if you're riding a motorcycle and you've got the clutch lever or like an ATV or anything that's got a clutch lever and you're revving it up and you're kind of moving the lever back and forth and it's not like taking off and going. It's got that weird, that weird hesitation. And, that, and that's what's happening when you have a slipping clutch or brake inside of an automatic transmission. Or if, for example, this was able to get into first, but then in the shift to second or third, you had a really high flare. So like the engine revs come way up and then it comes back down and it finally clunks into gear. Um, that's another telltale that you've got a slipping component of a clutch or brake. These are internal pieces that require major overhaul. So that means transmission's got to come out, got to be completely torn down, cleaned up, inspected for any damage components, and then reassembled with what we call a quote-unquote rebuild kit. And that's all fresh. 
bushings, bearings, steel discs, friction discs, O-rings, etc. Basically, everything that isn't a hard part like a gear is going to get replaced. And in this inspection, we're also looking for components that have been scored or grooved because that can cause seals to leak and fluid pressure to be lost. And then, obviously, you're going to go down the same road of the transmission's not going to work in 25,000 or 50,000 miles. So those are all major problems that, that require removal and disassembly. And that's probably beyond the do-it-yourselfer. Now, there's a lot of great information out there online. You can buy books, DVDs, videos online of how to do a transmission teardown. But I would equate automatic transmission rebuilding to, like, open-heart surgery. It requires a good, big, clean workspace, lots of cleaning material, like a solvent tank or fluids, like brake clean or something like that. And it's just a messy job. You've got to pull it apart, clean the casing, then literally gut every single piece out of the transmission, lay it out in order, clean each piece up, rebuild each piece, and then reassemble it. And it's got to be super clean because any kind of foreign debris in there, you can have some problems. These are tiny little orifices inside of this transmission that the fluid goes through and that any kind of debris that you left or put inside that transmission can cause problems. So... I don't think I'd recommend this for a do-it-yourself job. Realistically, if this is a do-it-yourselfer job, you're going to pull the transmission out yourself and send it to a qualified rebuilder, and then they're going to overhaul it, send it back to you, and you can put it in yourself. That would be probably the extent of a do-it-yourselfer job. And if you're not comfortable or capable of lifting something that size, you know, hundreds of pounds, especially underneath the vehicle, then I would just outsource it and have somebody completely rebuild it from start to finish and just rebuilt transmissions now this is a whole different story you can get a basic rebuild which is like taking a junkyard core they're going to freshen it up and send it over to you to put in your vehicle and this is going to run probably about fifteen hundred dollars maybe a little less and that's kind of like the bare minimum you want to do you want to make sure you get a flushed and rebuilt torque converter that's going to be a few hundred dollars that may not come with a rebuilt transmission so definitely check the wording don't pay attention to all these super high mile guarantees and warranties and blah, blah, blah. That doesn't matter if you're stranded in the middle of nowhere. Make sure you get somebody that knows Ford Automatics and uses quality components. Most likely, you're going to be probably in the $2,000 to $2,500 range to get a transmission that's been overhauled correctly. It has all the updated little pieces because every automatic transmission has all these little updates that you want to have done over time. Obviously, as the transmission's been out for over a couple of years, there's some there's some fixes that usually go along with it. So, of course, a guy that knows a Ford Automatic is going to know all of these little fixes. So that's my recommendation. I would try to avoid any of those, refer them as, like, Jiffy Lubes of automatic transmission repair. You know, Amco, eh, I don't know. I would probably find somebody that specializes in just automatic transmissions and maybe Ford products. If you decide to do this yourself... Obviously, we're going to have the rebuilt torque converter, rebuilt transmission. We're going to have all brand new Ford OEM quality fluid. Don't use generic stuff. I would recommend using Ford fluid. So you're going to jam that guy back in there. You want to flush the cooler lines because if you've had a clutch or a brake, which is a friction material, wear out, which is causing the slipping, that debris is going to be in the fluid, which means it's going to be in the radiator and or the auxiliary cooler. So you want to use a flushing agent or air and push that through the cooling circuit so that way we don't have any debris left over. So when we put this in, we don't just hook the lines up and have all that sediment that's in there go right into your new transmission. Flush the cooler, get the transmission in there, make sure we follow the absolute procedure for getting the fluid level correct. 
I would also grab a scan tool and clear out the adaptive learning on the engine computer. So what happens is if the transmission's slipping, the computer's going to try to start adjusting for that to compensate for that wear. And that can really screw up the shift pattern on a new transmission because that slipping no longer is there. So you want to clear that out and get that back to zero again. So that way it can adapt to the new fresh transmission that's in there. Well, Aaron, I hope that gives you a better idea of what's happening with your transmission. I think it's probably an internal problem. If it's not a valve body problem, either way, there's some serious money and some internal repairs going on. So good luck with that. Check out the affordable DC generator page for an affordable DC power solution. Take care, guys. All right. I'll just say that like this kind of thing happens. Um, my grandparents, when I was a kid, just learning how to drive and, and had got my permit and, and even my license for a little bit, had this old... I'm talking like old panel wagon, Oldsmobile station wagon, like the big boat, right? Like damn near as much room as a pickup truck in the back of that thing. Um, but it had no reverse. It'd go forward and it shifted just fine, but it had no reverse. And uh, I drove it for quite a few number of months that way. And no, I didn't push it. I would always strategically park it to where either I could just pull out or sometimes what I would do is park it like on a hill And then you could just take your foot off the brake, put it in neutral, and let it back up. And there were other times that I would actually use a hill to back it into somewhere so I could pull out. So you kind of pull up the hill, you let it coast backwards, and then you kind of like you use that momentum and, and, and let it kind of back in. But you, you couldn't hit the brake hard until you were exactly where you wanted to be because once you stopped, you would stop. But, yeah, and so this kind of thing is not unusual Um And Derek gave some good advice on it. Anyway, next up, let's talk about long-term storage of tool batteries with Tim Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Tim the Toolman Cook from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada. Coming to you from AllSeasonsMain.com where we define what it means to be a successful entrepreneur as a modern handyman, where we share tips and tricks, successes and failures on a road to financial freedom. So I'm back to answer another question for the expert council. This week, Michael in Texas says he has a question for Tim Taylor. A joke that anybody younger than 35 would probably miss, but I'm guessing most of us will get it. <laughs> uh, so this week's question is, what is the best way to store my lithium-ion batteries for my battery-powered hand tools? Details. Is it best to store the batteries inside the tools or not? Also, does it matter to the tool or the battery if they're left in the tools for long periods without being used? So, battery storage depends on a whole lot of factors. Uh, the three main ones are temperature, humidity, and the charge capacity when it's put to bed. Uh, the cooler you can store a lithium-ion battery within reason, the longer it'll hold a charge. 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit kind of seems to be the ideal temperature, but uh, room temperature is a good compromise. We should always avoid extreme temperatures, as the warmer the temperature, the quicker the discharge, and if you're storing them at half charge level, they'll be more inclined to freeze, potentially ruining the battery. Uh, charge capacity as well is also an important storage factor. If you have a fully charged battery at room temperature, it's going to lose around 20% of charge after three months. But if it's at 50% charge or a little less when you store it, you're only going to find about a 5% drop over the same period of time. So if you're just looking for longevity, lack of maintenance, you're better to store it at half charge as you won't find a significant drop over longer periods of time. However, If you're looking at keeping your power tool batteries ready to use in long-term storage, I'd recommend taking them out of storage every three to six months and topping them up a charge. Just like you take a generator out every couple of months to run it to make sure it's good and ready for you. 
Storing batteries long-term at full charge will mildly decrease the life expectancy, something I've uh, touched on in the past, but keep that in mind. And if you're storing them in a moving vehicle or somewhere they're likely to get bumped and jostled around, keeping them at half charge makes them less susceptible to adverse chemical reactions. You remember the Samsung phones? Considering humidity levels, the drier the better as well. This can be an issue in high humidity areas, so occasional inspection should be done for corrosion issues, as storing them in a climate-controlled area really isn't that possible or practical sometimes. Although some people might be tempted to store the battery on the charger itself, this will shorten the life significantly and cause uh, serious safety issues, so don't do that. I didn't figure you would, but I thought I'd throw that in there for anybody who might be thinking about it. And regarding the issue of storing them attached or separate from the tools, all the major tool and battery manufacturers recommend storing the battery separate from the tools themselves. It lessens the chance of corrosion, shorting out, or a whole host of other unwanted side effects. And for what it's worth, I store mine separate from the tool as well if I'm going to not be using it for more than a couple of days. So, if you're looking for longevity, keeping the batteries in like new condition, storing them just below half charge is the ideal situation. They won't be affected by heat, and they travel much safer when they're partially discharged, just below 50%. If you want to store them fully charged, store them in a cooler environment. The cooler, the better. And if there's a chance they could get below freezing, a full charged battery is a must. Uh, if it's below half, down in the 30 to 20% range, you can actually ruin it um, if it goes below freezing. But if you're storing them fully charged, you're periodically going to have to haul them out and top them up, like I said. And another benefit of keeping them fully charged is they can be a small source of emergency backup power. I'm a big fan of having all my battery tools using the same battery style, as well as having multiple uses. DeWalt makes a little adapter that you can buy for 40 bucks in Canada, so, you know, probably 20 or 25 American, that slides on the top of any other 20-volt batteries. And it gives it two USB ports on the top of that battery that'll allow it to double as a battery bank in a pinch. As well, they offer a more expensive solution called a portable power station, And it'll take 420 or 60 volt batteries and can be used either as a charger when plugged into uh, 110 or as a 1800 watt continuous power supply capable of 3600 peak watts, essentially acting as a battery powered generator. Another option to think about. Anyway, that's it for me, guys. If you have a minute, drop by and check out my YouTube channel at allseasonsmain.com. The month of October is going to be DeWalt month. Big surprise for me where my Tool Time Gear Reviews will be a new DeWalt video hitting each Wednesday morning. The reviews i got coming up for you is a cordless 18-gauge nailer, a follow-up full review on the 60-volt chainsaw, the new handheld blower I just picked up, and at the end of the month, the item with a 1,000 uses, the DeWalt Inflation Station, something that I've quickly fallen in love with. So anyway, guys, thanks again, and as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Next up, I got one from Doc Bones, and I think I'm saying this right. There is a parasite that has caused some outbreaks recently in the United States called Cyclospora. We're going to talk about what that is, how to avoid it, and what to do if you get it. Bones, take it away. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, and also co-author of books like The Survival Medicine Handbook, Alden's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alden's Pandemic Preparedness Guide. We take for granted the ability for people in Montana to buy bananas at the supermarket in February, but it's pretty obvious they're not grown locally. When I challenged people a decade ago to grow their own food and eat what is produced locally, well, it was like I handed them a box of toads.
Yes, we do have the ability to get all sorts of exotic foods imported to us. And the supermarkets down here in subtropical South Florida have several varieties of apples and blueberries pretty much all year round. But food that's imported here isn't always 100% free of contamination. Food contamination is a constant concern in the United States, especially from imported produce. As long as we import food, we must be especially careful to eliminate disease-causing organisms, also known as pathogens, from our food. A number of different disease-causing organisms especially put humans at risk. One of these is Cyclospora chiatinensis. From May to late August 2020, more than 1,100 laboratory-confirmed cases of food contamination due to cyclospora, also known as cyclosporiasis, were reported in 34 states. That's 34. In most cases, fresh imported produce, especially greens and vegetables, were identified as the likely origins. Cyclospora is a one-celled parasite that's a natural inhabitant of the tropics and subtropics where it seems to cause outbreaks that are seasonal in nature. The U.S. cases, however, occurred in temperate climates and in people who had not visited the tropics before symptoms began. In other words, it came about here. Cyclospora is spread by people ingesting food or water contaminated with feces containing the oocysts. An oocyst is essentially a thick-walled fertilized egg. Unlike some similar parasites, however, the oocyst needs time, usually about one or two weeks, in the outside environment after being passed in a bowel movement to become infectious. That process is called sporulation. Once that occurs, human ingestion of the now-primed oocyst allows it to hatch. But they don't even call it that. They call it existation. Not like the word exist, but exist, E-X-C-Y-S-T. It then spends time in the intestine where it reproduces sexually or asexually. The whole thing makes your skin crawl. It's so complex that it's unlikely, though, that cyclospora can be passed directly from one person to another. More likely, the oocysts contaminate crops or water sources. Exactly how food or water becomes contaminated with cyclospora isn't fully understood, but once the oocysts hatch in the human body, symptoms begin to manifest. They start an average of about seven days after ingestion of the infected version of the oocyst, and they include watery diarrhea, the most common symptom, loss of appetite, low-grade fever, weight loss, cramping, bloating, gas, nausea and vomiting, and fatigue. Wow! You must be pretty miserable if you have a cyclospora infection. Interestingly, some people infected with cyclospora have no symptoms at all. Others have explosive bowel movements. Cyclospora infection often goes away by itself, and mild or asymptomatic cases require no treatment. If untreated, the illness endures for a few days, but some cases last a month. Some victims experience improvement and then relapse several times during the progress of the disease. Although not life-threatening, long-term fatigue and other problems are indeed a possibility. Once the organism is identified in a stool sample, cyclosporiasis can be effectively treated with the combination sulfa drug trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. You may know it as Bactrim or Septra DS. It's commonly used for bladder infections. The usual regimen for adults is trimethoprim 160 milligrams plus sulfamethoxazole 800 milligrams. That's one double-strength tablet twice daily for seven to ten days. The veterinary equivalent is fish sulfa forte. No effective alternatives have yet been identified if you happen to be allergic to sulfa drugs. In this case, well, at least most immune-competent people will recover without treatment and with good hydration. Immunity, well, it's not long-term. 
Recurrence of infection is not uncommon if you are re-exposed. So, how to prevent it? Avoiding any food or water that might be contaminated with feces is the best way to prevent infection. Routine chemical disinfection is surprisingly less effective for cyclospora than for most other bacteria or parasites. Fruit and vegetable handling basics include washing your hands with soap and water after touching fruit and vegetables, maybe before also. Also, be sure to clean cutting boards, dishes, utensils, and countertops between the preparation of meat, poultry, and seafood, and fruits and vegetables. Wash all fruits and vegetables thoroughly under running water before eating, cutting, or cooking. Remove any damaged or bruised areas on fruits and vegetables. Firm items like cucumbers or melons, they actually should be scrubbed with a clean brush dedicated to the purpose. Storing properly by refrigerating, cut, peeled, or cooked fruits and vegetables within two hours, preferably sooner, is also important. Separate the storage of fruits and vegetables and raw meat, poultry, and seafood. They should not be stored in the same cabinet. It should be noted that no vaccine for cyclosporiasis is available at present. This is Joe Halden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, support our mission to put a medically prepared person in every family and get yourself medically prepared for what is certain to be uncertain. That is our future. You can do that by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Next up, let's hear from Chef Keith Snow on the storage of fats. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Wanted to answer Chris from Indiana's question about storing fats. Now, uh, as you all know and you all see out there in TSP land that our good friend and host Jack has shrunk quite a bit. And he looks probably, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 years younger, looking good, Jack, with the keto diet and just cutting the carbs back. And, yeah, it's not supposed to happen if you up your fat intake and lower your carbs. You know, everything bad is supposed to happen. But as many of us out there know, uh, usually the opposite happens. Now, uh, low carb is not for everyone, um, and keto is... Not for everyone, but for many of us, it is the solution. So that presents quite the quagmire when you start talking about storing foods. Many of you know a few years back, I published a course called Food Storage Feast. You can find it at foodstoragefeast.com, and it's about storing food in general, but it covers lots and lots of um, carbs. We have some information on fats as well. But um, some people that are doing keto are kind of like, what the heck am I going to do? I need to store food, but I don't want to eat carbs. Now, I'll submit that in a disaster scenario or a grid down situation or economic collapse, whatever it might be, uh, I bet you even the keto people are start eating carbs if that's the last resort. So I do certainly suggest that everybody does have a lot of um, stable food storage on hand. But let's address this uh, fat storage issue. Now, Chris in Indiana, this is a good question, and I think the best way to answer it is just to tell you what we do. And, you know, certainly... I've talked about this and I feel it's, um, you know, a pretty serious issue storing fats. So what I do, these are the fats that I store, lard, coconut oil, butter, and I don't store cheap butter. Um, 
I, I just don't like to eat cheap butter, so I store good butter. Canned butter, palm kernel oil, olive oil, safflower oil, and sunflower oil. Those are the fats that I generally have on hand. Now, um, I have a spare refrigerator, and I like to put, and I call it the fat fridge, and I put quite a bit of fat in there. And, for instance, lard, if you keep it refrigerated in its original tub or even the um, packages that it comes in, if you refrigerate it, you can get five years out of it. I'm very comfortable in saying. Um, now, do you want to eat factory farm lard? Eh, that's a debatable issue. But finding lard from a family farm um, from healthy pigs is pretty difficult. So if you can find it and you can properly package it, um, cause you can can that kind of stuff, um, then you're good to go. But most of us are probably just going to be storing, um, the commercially available lard. And again, I put, you know, about 20 of those bricks. So it's, I guess that's, I think it's a pound at least, um, in the fridge. And then I also do lots of frozen butter. And I use a European butter, mostly Kerrygold is what I prefer. Sometimes I'll, I'll store, uh, New Zealand butter as well. And I'll put those butters into a gallon zip bag and leave them frozen. I also keep quite a few of them in the fridge. So I'll probably have 20, 30 butters, um, frozen and refrigerated as well. Coconut oil is pretty shelf stable. And again, the reason these fats are more shelf stable is that they're saturated. And that's, of course, what everyone tells you to avoid. But um, the saturated fats last longer. So I'll get um, refined coconut oil. I personally don't like the extra virgin coconut oil because it tastes too much like coconut. <laughs> you, you cook with it in the whole house. You know, it smells like a a tropical island and it's very dominant. So like if you were to cook eggs in that or you use um, extra virgin um, coconut oil, it tends to overpower the things that you're cooking. And in my mind, that kind of, um, I don't know, I just don't want it. So I'll use the um, refined coconut oil and it comes in tubs and I keep that in a dark place in a pantry and even warmer temperatures don't seem to bother coconut oil. Obviously it comes from a tropical climate to start with. So I'll store about five to 10 of those, um, pretty good size. I think it's about 46 ounces, um, tubs. And I don't buy the cheap, super cheap store brand. I'll buy a better brand of it. Um, but I keep those stored in a dark pantry and the, the temperature is pretty stable at, you know, between, 68 and 75 degrees in there. And, you know, you have to make sure you buy one that is not clear because light is a big killer of uh, the quality of fats. Lights, light, heat, and oxygen are generally what will zap your fats. And you can tell when fat is spoiled because it will smell funny. Um, so that's what you want to avoid is the, the kind of off color and off um, smell. But the other things that I do store are olive oil, but not the extra virgin type, the very light um, olive oil. And it's just for cooking. Sometimes I'll use it in some baked goods. I store safflower and sunflower oils as well. And those in their original packaging, again, in the dark um, and in a stable temperature, you can easily get a year out of those. 
So those will definitely need to be dated and rotated. But those other solid fats, lard, coconut oil, butter, palm kernel oil, that's really good stuff with a long shelf life. Again, it, if you're serious about this diet and you're serious about being prepared, it's not too far fetched to get a fat fridge. Um, or just a, you know, freezer fridge. You can get a side by side or, you know, whatever. I don't need to tell you about that, but put it in your garage and load it up with fats and just, you know, that's your, your fat fridge and you'll never have to worry and you won't have to do all that much rotating, but it is, you know, obviously smart to date and rotate. The other thing that I do buy in store quite a bit of, although it's gotten insanely expensive, is canned butter. It's usually um, from New Zealand. The brand is called Red Feather. And New Zealand definitely is known for their grass-fed farming and their dairy that is out on grass. Their butters are super high quality. They make good cheese as well. Um, so I store a couple of cases of Red Feather canned butter. And, of course, when I got the cases of it, I did... Um, Open one to taste it, and it's really good butter. I mean, it's on par with Kerrygold. Um, now, the, this the cheap, you know, butter that you can get in like Walmart, great value. I mean, that stuff is trash. It's it's horseshit. I wouldn't I wouldn't use that at all. It's it's not a great value. I mean, it says great value, but it's cheap junk. And you know, if you're on a diet like this, the fat needs to be high quality. I mean, that is a super nutritious food, fat. And make sure you're getting high-quality fat. So Chris in Indiana, dude, I hope this um, helps you a little bit in your journey to be self-sufficient on a more keto-type lifestyle. And definitely hats off to all of you out there that have made some dietary changes based on, you know, actually just watching Jack. Yeah, he talks about it, but if he kept talking about it and he didn't look any different, you know, I don't think many of you would would think it's for you. But obviously... It's paid off for um, Dorothy and Jack for sure, and I've seen great results with it too. I want to also encourage people out there. Um, so for me, diet is was just not enough. I had to add exercise. So I've been actively doing you know, push-ups, sit-ups, walking, mountain biking, you know, hiking, and those things have really helped me shed uh, some extra pounds and look a little better. So um, encouragement for that. And I want to just mention um, to everybody out there, if you're interested in seeing what I'm doing on a daily basis, Instagram.com slash Harvest Eating. Lots of videos, photos, stories, all that. So go over there and um, follow me there. And Jack, I hope you have a great day. And I hope everybody has a great weekend out in TSP land. Keep sending in your questions for me, and I'll do my best to answer them. Take care. Next up, Dr. Ken Berry on when and to- taking when to take and the timing of your supplements, specifically if you're fasting, doing intermittent fasting, uh, so that you don't maybe interfere with the result, the benefits of fasting. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today for Fernando. Fernando has three quick questions here, and I think they're all relevant to everyone's health, so let's talk about them. Number one, should I avoid taking my vitamin, salt, and supplements while I'm fasting and take during my six-hour feeding window to achieve autophagy? Uh, First of all, autophagy is the process by which your body, when you're fasting, recycles old and damaged cells and replaces them with new, vibrant, healthy cells. This is one of the main benefits of doing an intermittent daily fast 
is you increase the rate of autophagy in your body, which is a very, very good healing and recuperating and repairing mechanism that your body naturally does when you don't eat. I think that you should take your vitamins and supplements when you break your fast, Fernando, I think you should take it right before your your breakfast, whatever time of day you, you break your fast, or during the meal or right after the meal. That that mimics the way our ancestors did it. I think that's the most physiologically appropriate way to do it. Question number two, should I have my bulletproof coffee before or after my morning six-mile dog walk? First of all, uh, both I and your dog are proud of you for walking six miles every day. That's awesome. I think you should, uh, if you're thirsty, you should drink water or sparkling water or unsweet tea or black coffee. If you're hungry and you don't want to break your fast yet, then I think adding some butter or MCT oil or coconut oil to your coffee, that's going to hack your hunger hormones and without meaningfully breaking your fast because the, the pure fat that you put in your coffee is not going to raise your insulin and therefore break fast. If you're hungry at 5 a.m., Fernando, I think that you can uh, have some bulletproof coffee. If you're not hungry until noon or 2 p.m., th- that's when you should have your bulletproof coffee in order to extend your fast without raising your insulin levels. Uh, question number three are raw root crops, carrots, sunchoke, beets, onions, radish, and turnips, keto-friendly. If fermented in salt, are they keto-friendly? So I think Fermenting them does help break down some of the um, perhaps gut-not-friendly enzymes and other things that plants put into themselves to, to prevent them from being eaten. But what, what the entire concept of a ketogenic diet or a low-carbohydrate diet comes down to, Fernando, is how many grams of carbohydrate are there in what you're about to eat. Uh, I think that any of the root vegetables are very starchy, very high in carbohydrate, very high in sugar. I love pickled carrots and uh, onions and other things, but you have to count those carbohydrates, okay? And so I recommend that most adults eat 20 total grams of carbohydrate or less each day. And so if you want to spend your 20 grams of carbohydrate intake on carrots or beets or onions, I think that's fine. I don't think there's anything negative about that. They're probably a little less negative if you, if they have been fermented. Hope that helps a lot, Fernando, and I hope the other listeners got some value out of that. This is Dr. Barry. I'll see you next time. Before we move on, I'll just say that my, my big thing with supplements during fasting time is nothing to do with interfering with uh, autophagy or the benefits of intermittent fasting or what have you, because there's no calories there. Or if there are, there are trace amounts that are insignificant. The problem is that some of the supplements that I take, if I take them on an empty stomach, they make me a very angry, unhappy, miserable jack. So, I mean, that's my bigger concern. Is So if you are going to take supplements during intermittent fasting and you take a significant amount of supplementation, which I do, I would try taking the things that you think are most likely to not cause you any kind of distress and then pair up the things that you you can't take alone. For example, with me, I cannot take a multivitamin on on an empty stomach. A multivitamin or a B-complex will both jack me up in a bad way. 
The quercetin and zinc that I take that I've been recommending is 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 a is a good preventative uh, against all RNA replicating viruses, which COVID nineteen is. Um, I've heard from people that, that they cannot take either one of those on an empty stomach. It just jacks them up bad. Doesn't do anything to me. Doesn't do anything to me at all. So I think that that's something that it, it's highly individualistic. But in my experience, B-complex and multivitamins are the two that most people have the most problem with. And I will say this big time. If you are a coffee drinker and you drink coffee, but, but you know that's still kind of empty stomach type thing, but it's caffeine... You do not mix freaking any supplement that gives you problems on an empty stomach with coffee unless you want to turbocharge the problem. Got you. And I'm not talking about visiting the bathroom problem. I'm just talking about feeling like dog crap. Anyway, next up, Patrick Rorman on that question. I feel dumb for not thinking to myself. If you want to get a knife kit from knifekits.com, what do you look for for that first knife, especially if you don't have like bandsaws and all kinds of fancy, fancy stuff, and it's your first time, and you're doing it with a kid too. Patrick, what do you say, man? Hey guys, this is Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. This week question comes from Marty Taylor. He asks, if I were to buy a kit from knifekits.com to work on with my 13 year old, what do you recommend for beginners without bandsaws and grinders? Just normal hand tools. Hey, that's a great question, Marty. And, uh, I went over to Knife Kits dot com's website and just to see what they had to offer and they have a great selection of uh, all sorts of different knives and profiles and shapes so i'm going to give you some things to take into consideration when you're selecting a knife to build however uh, a lot of that's going to come down to your personal preference when you pick a, a knife you want to pick something that you know that you like and that you're likely going to use, um, especially for a first knife, you know, you don't want to pick out something that is <clears throat> simple, but something that you're not really going to be happy with in the long run. So, um, you know, first kind of comes down to your personal preference, but then just to dial that back in, here are some things you should consider. If the knife has bolsters, that's, uh, you know, the metal piece towards the front of the handle. That is going to add some difficulty to the knife build. You can buy some knife kits with the bolsters already attached and some where you attach the bolsters. I would probably shy away from that on your uh, first attempt of making a knife. It, it, it makes the build a little more complicated and you're fitting in more pieces together. Um, if you're going to peen those bolsters on, you know, that really takes um, some skill and practice. So I would, I, would, I would stay away from a knife with bolsters on a first build. Now, <clears throat> along with that, there's, a, there's some knives with just two pins holding the handle on or... Some knives with multiple pins holding the handle on. Obviously, the more holes in the handle, the more chance of you cracking the handle material or drilling a hole wrong. When it comes time to epoxy that handle up, it's more things that you have to get lined up. So keep it simple. Try to find a handle with maybe two or three pins in it um, for your first knife. 
also um, take in mind the take in consideration your your handle material is going to uh, also be something to consider. You can buy blocks that you cut scales out yourself, which obviously that's going to add some difficulty to it, especially if you're just working with hand tools, trying to cut the the scales evenly and uh, getting a straight cut is not very uh, easily done with hand tools. It can be done, but not very easy. So I would recommend buying wood scales that are already about to the thickness that you want and the size that you want. Now, a lot of people like synthetics like G10 or carbon fiber, and they are they do make a good handle, but one thing to keep in mind with something like that is there is a there is risk that you don't want to breathe the dust of some of that stuff in, and it is a little bit more difficult to cut. Um, I personally would probably shy away from using G10 or something like that on a first build. I would probably stick with some sort of wood that's going to be uh, easy to work with. This will give you an opportunity to look at what kind of woods are available and do a little research. If you want to make this kind of an educational project, you can uh, research the different types of woods and their characteristics. Some woods are really oily and uh, won't adhere real, real well to the handle. Others are really hard, which is good for a handle. But the trade-off with that is they can be brittle. So if you try to peen a pin, you could crack the scales. Um, or if you drop the knife, it could uh, crack the scales as well. As well. So something I might recommend for a first knife, uh, maybe it's like the Bacote. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but Bacote, B-O-C-O-T-E. Um Let's see, what else? Maybe some Cocobolo or some Kingwood would be uh, some good woods to work with on your first knife. Then when it comes to pin selection, if you're going to put a mosaic pin in a knife, make sure that you have a nice sharp hacksaw blade and you cut it slowly. Those mosaic pins can get messed up if... Uh, if you cut them wrong so that might be something you want to tackle on a first build it might not be so let's see we've covered uh you know the profile is going to be kind of personal preference keep the handle simple the fewer the pins the better oh and the type of tang so i would i would stick with a a full tang knife on a first build um i think that's going to be the simplest and I, I prefer a full tang knife for most things. So I appreciate the question. I hope this helps. And be sure and send me a photo of the knife when you guys get it built. I'd like to see that. And uh, thanks a lot for the question. If you guys have a question, be sure to send it to Jack at the Survival Podcast. And uh, have a great week. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Really great suggestions. I mean, given it's Patrick, I would expect nothing less, but that was that was great. And I think that might be one that I 
I might save that one and play it again around Christmas time. Because I bet you a lot of y'all would consider that, and maybe you would be more likely to get a knife kit and give it a shot if you knew what not to put, you know, basically knew what situation to not put yourself into uh, the first time around to gain some experience. With that, let's hear from Nicole Sauce on a very important web and business skill, search engine optimization. Hey guys, Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee and Holler Roast Coffee. I have a question from John. Where do I learn SEO in 2020? Building a side gig and I want to own my area, where do I learn? I Google my service and my area and only get out of area results. I'm bootstrapping and don't have a budget to pay you <laughs> to make Google my servant. I'm not going to say the word he really wrote there. Uh, where do I learn? Hidden second question, ideas to get customer, customers from Zuckbook without being on or limited time on the censorship platform. What jujitsu moves are best? Well, I'm going to answer your second first question first. Jiu-Jitsu moves on Facebook and not spending time there but still getting customers for there isn't going to work. If you want to use Facebook as a mining tool for customers, you need to be on the network, interacting on the network, and have a strategy for getting customers from Facebook. The best way to do that is be part of a group or found a group that's very successful because that's how you get people to learn about your story and then they want to buy your service. Of course, If you're going to use Facebook to get customers, you want to find a way to drive them to one of your primary communication sources like an email list or your website so that you own that information at the end of the day of your customer. So what I would not do on Facebook, and I'm sure some of you will disagree who use this, is use their shopping tool or set up my store only on Facebook. Because if you do that, if they decide to turn you off, then you're off. And I have a friend today who was just put in Facebook jail for 30 days because he, quote-unquote, shared too many questionable news sources, and it's a prominent podcaster, and it's a load of garbage, right? You are opening yourselves up to that control when you're on that on that platform. That said, though, you can still get a lot of customers from Instagram and Facebook, so go ahead and use that resource source. Just always base it back in sending customers to you directly not being tied to that platform. Second question, where do I learn SEO in 2020? Uh, well, you can Google it. <laughs> There are a lot of articles about best practices in SEO, and they don't go very deep into it, but I think it's a good way to get the overview of what a meta description is and all of the other terms that come up in SEO. I use a plugin called Yoast SEO on my WordPress website, and it allows me to put customized keywords on each page and post. Jack uses one too. It's called all-in-one SEO. It does the same thing. So what you need to have in place for your website, though, is a strategy of these keywords are the keywords I'm going for. In the case of Unloose the Goose, it's the Agorist podcast, right? And then you need to make sure that those terms come up on your site sometimes in different ways and that it's all supported through your page descriptions and blog post descriptions. When you get a plugin like that, just the function of starting to use it helps teach you how to do SEO. However, I also have three free webinars at livingfreeintennessee.com. It's the first one is how do I get seen on the web? And it goes into a lot of that information. You're going to need to email me to get access to it, though. So just shoot me an email. Go to livingfreeintennessee.com, fill out the contact form, and I'll hook you up with those. We did those three webinars in April. They were free for everybody. They remain free for everybody. But I don't have public links out on purpose just 
because I want to have that customer relationship we talked about before, right? And then the third thing is go to Google My Business and set your business up there, link it to your address, and then make sure your keywords are in your Google My Business description so that you can start owning your area and then you have that geographic anchor. That is one of the primary ways that Google is helping to link searches with locality. And if you really want to own your area for something like, oh, I don't know, handyman services, then that's how you do it. And then finally, find ways to get referrals from other sites. If people write about you and link to your business, that is good for your SEO. Anyway, I hope this answer helps you, John. I do think as you build your business, think of other ways to get business besides SEO. SEO is not going to save you. You need people to hear about you. You need to find ways to capture those customer relationships and communicate with them. As Jack says, it's, it's harder to get a new customer than it is to build or grow business from an existing customer, right? And then you also spend a less time, a lot less time selling through a referral. If somebody comes to you through a referral than you do if it's somebody's never met you before because they already have the recommendation of the other person. Of course, you can look into advertising and other things. It really depends on what your business is, how the best way is to get those new customers. Guys, have you seen kickstarthollerroast.com? We passed $20,000 and we're going for our big, hairy, audacious goal of $30,000 to be able to also, like after we've expanded the roaster and all of the extra things that come with that, like bumping up the electricity put it all in a building big enough to hold it. I found a building. I'm super excited and it's really well built. And well, we just put it out there yesterday. Big, hairy, audacious goal of 30,000. So if you haven't checked it out, go to kickstarthollerroast.com. Look at the perks you can choose and choose one to support us. If that's not in your purview right now, consider just letting your friends know about the story of how my roaster caught on fire and we realized that we better just put in a bigger roaster because part of the reason it caught on fire is it's going all the time. So we're doing a big expansion. Really thankful for all the support I've gotten. And I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. Make it a great week. So I wanted to talk to you about this uh, comment that came on the blog. When, when Ken Berry was on last week, we talked about the proper human diet, um, which I very much feel keto is. He made a comment, the listener caught, about no fats from plant sources. Now, I I can tell you straight up that he meant the, the ones that we generally eat. I know that Ken has no problem with, for instance, olive oil. There's actually very few oils that come from plant-based sources that I, I don't have any problem with at all. That I, I don't worry about nut oils in general. As long as you don't go to excess because it's a lot of calories, and that's true with any of these. Um, and Ken and I differ on the caloric thing, but but nut oils, um, coconut oil, um, olive oil, full stop. Those to me are the, the oils, the fats that belong in your body on any kind of regular basis that don't come from something that had a face. Right, so mostly I cook with butter, I cook with bacon fat, I cook with lard. That's you know, and I, I like to eat a lot of fish that are high in fat, including catfish. Catfish is actually very high in fat relative for fish, uh, and it's a delicious fat when you cook it right. Um, now, this is where we get into the world of 
what some people are actually very proud of the fact that they're quote-unquote dirty keto. And dirty keto works like this. You eat whatever the hell you want, feedlot beef, mozzarella cheese balls, whatever it is, as long as your macros are right. And, and Ken and I differ on the net carbs, and I think as long as you're not abusing resistant starches and fibers to a huge level, you can do net carbs. I'm proof it works. Right? If you don't, if net carb counting doesn't work, I would still be 270 something pounds. And I'm right in at like 203. So no, it works. Um, it absolutely does work. Now, if you're having trouble, if you're plateauing, that might be a place that you tighten up. And from time to time, I think we can break plateaus by being a little bit more purist. Okay? Now, when it comes to dirty keto, as long as we get the macros right, we eat anything we want. We don't count calorie. Well, mate, that calorie counting is a totally different uh, discipline, whether you want to do it or not, for portion control. I would say with dirt, the dirtier the keto, the more important it is. Because the easier, the more processed foods are, the easier it is to overeat in calories. The more you go to pure, natural, na natural foods, the harder it is to actually overeat on any consistent level because you can't do it. Because fat is satiating. And if we're, if we're not using a processed food, and I would say even a, a food like, I have nothing against it, I eat it all the time, but a food like sausage, it in some ways is processed because it's been ground, it's been pressed together, it's been seasoned. And if you take a person and you sit, set them down and you give, and you have a pork, pork sausage that's made with pork, spices and seasonings, pork fat, full stop. That's all that it is. And you give them, some delicious pork loin, or maybe a fattier cut like pork shoulder, they'll flat eat more of the sausage because your body is tricked in some ways and you can actually just consume more. So you do have to be a little more careful there. But when it comes down to it, ketogenic diets work primarily when it comes to weight loss because your hormones come into balance. And if all you needed to do was to not eat processed foods, then you could eat anything you want, avoid all processed foods, and get the same results. And I'm telling you, by the averages, you cannot. It does not work. The question you have to ask yourself is, how healthy do I want to be? Do I just want to be skinnier and still be eating all kinds of garbage? Or do I want to be really, really healthy? And the more you can do to eliminate processed foods, the better. And this is why I believe personally that once you reach a target weight and you are happy with your weight and you have reached your, your other health goals, you've got your blood pressure under control, you've got your, your A1C where you want it, you've got everything where you want it to be. You are a healthy, happy person. You look healthy, you feel healthy, you are healthy. You've got your chronic conditions uh, under control if you have any chronic conditions you can start to move toward the paleoprimal world. My problem with paleoprimal is I don't believe if you're excessively obese, it will get you to where you want to go for most, not all, but most people. For some people, it will work. I also don't think it's a good idea to be on it fully because it's not how our ancestors would have eaten. I do not believe that our, that our paleolithic ancestors lived on a keto diet all the time. I disagree with some things Ken says, like when he was talking about, you know, you can only get fruit like two weeks out of the year. In the tropics, my ass. In the tropics, you can come by fruit all year long. And you can bet that our Paleolithic 
ancestors who lived in tropics used it. The question would be how often, how frequently, and, and, and when you look at fruit that way, if you're not eating where you go to a grocery store and you can have whatever you want whenever you want, you're only going to eat so much fruit. And so fruit would be something that would be, have been more likely harvested on the go. So we go out on a, on a, on a hunting uh, expedition and, oh, there's some figs. Let's eat some figs for some energy while we're in pursuit of game. And once we have acquired our game and we're going back, we probably aren't going to be messing around with many figs for a while. And then we're not talking about, you know, the Middle East during what we consider civilization. We're talking about pre-civilization here. We're talking about the way humanity evolved for most of the time. We would graze on these things. And I think that's the way to emulate that as we move toward a maintenance mode. So, for instance, now that I'm at a weight that I'm very happy with, And I may go Puritan again for a little while at some point and take some weight off. But I will allow myself, especially through the winter, to go primal paleo for maybe two days a week. Some weeks only one day a week. And not go crazy with it. But that means that, so maybe on Saturday, I'll pull a couple sweet potatoes out of the ground and I'll fry them in lard. And yes, it'll be high carb. I'm not going to eat a pound of it though. And I'm not going to worry about it. And I'm not going to punish myself for it. And I'm not even going to say that I cheated. Because that would be a food that was available on Primal Paleo. But I'm not going to, that's not going to be my primary diet. That's what I found. And I think what I'm trying to get to with this is you have to find what works for you. But I do think that the people that get the best results get off processed foods. And if you told me, well, I don't want to go primal paleo, I don't want to go keto, I don't want to do any of that shit, would I be healthier if I just stopped eating all processed foods? Yes. And would a lot of your medical issues for many people correct? Yes. If you are severely overweight and you have a high A1C and you're a type 2 diabetic, will it be enough to reverse that? Likely no. Maybe. Primal paleo might. Because you're also then going to be giving up all the grains. So no processed foods, no grains. You're, you're halfway there. You, I will personally say, having been somebody that's tried all of these different ways of eating, I don't even like to call them diets, nothing has ever worked and been as easy to do as a good, clean keto. Clean keto means we are not doing processed foods. Clean keto means... Since we're not doing processed foods, we're not doing a lot of the low net, you know, the low net carb stuff on, on a regular basis because they're processed foods. See how that works? And if we're going to have one of those, that'll be on our paleo day. So I like the mission low carb torti tortillas. I expect I accept that some of that starch is going to get digested, but like I said to Ken, and he could not counter this, it's not going to get digested in my stomach because I can't. It's impossible. Biochemically, that cannot happen. So when I eat that meal, the carbs that can be extracted from that fiber will not be extracted when I eat that meal. They will be extracted roughly 14 to 18 hours later over about a four to six hour window until I crap it out, whatever's left of it. Because that's the only way your body can get calories out of that type of fiber. That's biochemically fact. But it's still a processed food. I can still eat more pork if I wrap them up in those things than if I don't. So that's not an everyday thing. 
and it is processed food, and it's not clean because it's using, you know, it's not all organic, it's got some plant fats in it, it's a very rare thing that we'll use. And that's how, that's how I think this stuff has to work, is we're going to stay the best we can most of the time, but I really encourage you, if you're doing this, to go with a clean keto approach, and if you are severely overweight, if you have severe health problems, Give yourself three to six months on that before you go trying to put these things in. If you're going to use them to get get on it, so initially I'm going to use these things, I'm going to start, and I'm going to give myself two or three weeks of intro to keto before I take those away, and that gets you, I don't give a shit what gets you on it. Just get on it. But I'm getting, since this last week that Ken was on, I'm getting tons of your jerk keto emails. People tell me they've lost 60, 70, 80 pounds. That's life-altering and life-saving, folks, really. All right, so with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, you can always help us out by doing what? Your online shopping at tspaz.com. Tspaz is where you'll find all the stuff that I recommend, stuff that I own, stuff that I have in my own home, stuff that I've, if I didn't buy it with my own money, I wouldn't recommend that you buy it. And recently, Anchor put their great big giant 28,000 milliamp badass, like two laptop battery sized backup power charger on sale for a stupid cheap price in the 30 buck range. And I recommended it. And I think I had a lot to do with Anchor selling every single one of them they had in inventory that day and them going out of inventory on Amazon. Some of you were very mad that you didn't get a chance to buy one, and no, you don't get a chance to buy one today. They're back up to their higher price, and I think they're still out of stock for a couple more days. I didn't check today. But what I found on the deal of the day today was the Anchor PowerCore 10,000 premium aluminum. It's 10,050. It's 10,000 aluminum portable charger. How cheap? Twelve ninety nine. You gotta get one. If you don't, if you don't have a, if, if you feel you have any hole in your ability for backup power for charging your small devices, you need one of these. Let me tell you, there's a lot to love about this thing. This is a great two is one, one is none, three is for me kind of thing if you already have it at that price. Also, what a great prepper present for people that they won't see as a prepper present. Um, cause 13 bucks, it will not charge your phone like eight friggin' times like the, the, the big one will. Because it can't, because it's a little bitty one. How about three and a half times from a f- complete dead iPhone to, to a fully charged about three and a half times before it itself will need to be charged again? It does have some other limits. The big one has two import, input ports and two output ports. Uh, the little one has a single uh, mini USB input, which it comes with the cable for that. And it has a single standard USB out port. So, I mean, you can charge, but it's a smaller one. So you, you, know, you only charge one device at a time, fine. Um, but for 13 bucks, and it's aluminum cased, it's well built. Everything Anchor builds, builds is great. And to me, your phone is your lifeline. It brings you news. It lets you call for help, communicate with your loved ones, and more. I have a generator. I have battery banks. I'm not always home, so I always keep a, ba- a backup battery fully charged as my final backup on power needs. And as I was saying, we're you know it's it's October. We're in Q4 of the year. We're heading to Christmas. Thirteen bucks for one. There isn't anybody I can think of that if I got them one of these as a Christmas present, they'd be like, I don't want that. And if they did, I'd be like, well, fine, you don't get it, jerk. I'm gonna keep it then. Because 
Have you ever been like, gee, I wish I had less backup power? So the PowerCore 10,050 Premium Aluminum Portable Charger from Anchor, these things are a steal on a regular day, but knock down a few dollars to 13 bucks. Check it out and get yourself one before they go back up to the full price. Anchor PowerCore Plus 10,050 Premium Aluminum Portable Charger. You can find it at tspaz.com. You can find it at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And if you were on the Daily Mail or the Telegram channel or any of the other social media things, you'd already have known about it. Now, this one probably won't sell out like they did last week, but a lot of times by the time my emails go out on some of this stuff, it's already gone. So pick one and get on it. People really love the Telegram channel. Uh, you can sign up for that uh, if you have the Telegram app and you won't hear 80 people talking to each other all day long. You'll just get announcements from me when new stuff's published on the blog. Another bit of an announcement, there's still like, I think, 70 uh, referral codes available. The code is Spearco100. If you will sign up for library, lbry.tv, uh, it'll also work on Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E, because they're basically the same things. So one's platform built on the other. If you sign up for an account with either one of them, and you use the the uh, code SPEARCO100, you will get some extra library uh, cryptocurrency tokens when you sign up for your account. And I want you to do it, because I will too. So, hey, there's like 60 of those still available, according to Jeremy from yesterday. I might do a little separate post about that today and make sure people know. So they're going to go fast. So if you hear this and you haven't done it yet, go try it. Sign up. Use code SPEARCO100. If it doesn't work, that means they've all been used. Next up, I have published a updated schedule for the workshop. Uh, it doesn't really affect when you show up or when you go home or anything like that. So if you're coming, you don't have to do anything different. But we've got some new people presenting. This is going to be an awesome workshop. Bo Botherington is on. That's the Shed the House guy. Uh, with Better Together Life, uh, Ken Berry, uh, who we said, always said was coming. Xavier Hawk is coming. Uh, John Bush is coming. Tim New on Dome Home Construction. Uh, some really cool people are going to be here. So you, if you want to check out the updated schedule, you can do that. Uh, those of you on the standby list, don't expect it to happen. I have almost as many people on standby list this year as I have people coming. It's 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 insane. Uh, I'm actually thinking about maybe doing a second one, like doing a spring one that I usually don't do this year, maybe reduced in attendance. I'm not sure on that yet. We'll wait till this one's over. But I feel bad on how many people didn't get to come, and I'm thinking that if I do that, uh, what I may do is give everybody that's on the standby list for this one first crack at signing up for that one because it's uh, it, I, I hate it. I hate it, guys. All of you that tried to sign up and couldn't, I hate it. I hate, to, especially people I know that have been to a bunch of them already. I hate telling you no, but there's a finite limit you can take for something like this. This is going to be an awesome workshop. With that, let's go ahead and uh, talk about our song of the day today. Song of the day today is awesome. It's called The Bird by Jerry Reed. And I just thought we needed some humor to go out. Jerry Reed had a lot of songs that were humor based songs. This song's about a cat walks into a bar, Jerry himself, of course, in the song, I guess. And a dude in there has a bird. Sounds like a joke. It is, sort of. Bird can sing. The bird sings like a bunch of famous people. Sings like George Jones. Uh, and in the end, sings like Willie Nelson. And there's one other person he sings like. You know, no, it's not, it's not another song. There's, there are two Willie songs referenced in this and one George Jones song. And I just think this song's funny. And I think it actually shows Jerry's talent as an artist, too, and the ability to 
sound a lot like other artists. With that, hope you enjoy your weekend. Hope you make it in a, into a get-shit-done weekend. It's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Well, my throat was dry and it is a-getting late. I was at this bar on an interstate when a guy with this bird on his shoulder walked through the door. Yeah. He proceeded to tell me the wildest thing. He said, sir, this bird of mine can sing like no other bird you have ever heard before. Well, I kind of looked at the guy and said, oh, really? He turned to the bird and said, do old Willie. When the bird started singing, I almost fell in the floor. Whiskey River, take my mind. Don't let a memory talk to me. Whiskey River, don't run dry. a heck of a thing. A man could get rich making that bird sing, and I could feel this wild ear kind of strong. And besides, I'm sitting here with two rich bait, and I'm probably blowing on beer anyway. Then he said, hey, when you hear him sing like George Jones, he stopped loving her today. They placed a wreath upon his door. So now carry him away He stopped loving her today I said, well, that does it, sir Yep, I'd like to buy that bird With a $500, take him off your hands, huh? Well, he thought for a while He said, all right He handed me the bird He said, good night Counted my money and out the door you ran. Well, I was thinking I'd found the rainbows in that the money would soon be pouring in when suddenly the bird just flew out the door and was gone. Well, then it hit me and I got boiling mad because I knew right then that I'd been had. And as he flew off into the night, he was singing this song. On the road again. I just can't wait to get on the road again. Somebody stop that bird! The life I love is making money with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. On the road again. My bird! I just can't wait to get on.